Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. In 2020, we have been reading through the Bible together. We are currently learning from the prophets of Israel, who deliver God's intentions and promises by pronouncing judgment and proclaiming hope. Join us as we wrestle through the prophecies and see how they reveal the hope of Jesus, the Christ, the King. If you are able, we would love to see you at one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Do you pray with me? Father, we uh, want to recognize your presence here this morning and pray that your spirit would operate in us as we wrestle with your word, the book of Malachi. Father, in some ways, it's a very foreign book to us. I'm not always sure how it immediately applies, but Father, what is true about your word is it's relevant. It it is truth that we need to have in our lives, and that's true of this book. Help us to see that and be challenged where we need to be challenged and encouraged where we need to be encouraged this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning, what, what do you think the besetting sin of America is? What would you say? In fact, nudge your neighbor since we're socially distanced correctly. You can do that. Talk to the person next to you if there is someone. What do you think it is? The besetting sin of America. If you're at home, you can talk with whoever's watching with you. Suggestions, ideas, what do you think it is? Idolatry, okay. Crime, okay, pride. Greed, materialism. Uh, Unfortunately, for some of us, that's a besetting sin. (laughs) Anything else? Politics. Politics. (laughs) Uh, It's an irritant. I'm not sure it's a besetting sin, but maybe. If you push me into a corner and I had to tell you one, I mean, there's probably a long list, but if I had to, to boil it down to one issue from my perspective, I would suggest that it's the sin of selfishness. Um, Think about it. Uh, uh, It's a small thing, but you know, the most often taken photograph now in our world is what? A selfie, a picture of ourselves. There's even a a thing called now selfie wrist, where where (laughs) truly a doctor has diagnosed this, that you inflame your wrist because you're taking so many selfies. It's just part of a culture. In 2015, a Pew Research poll revealed that 68% of us say the term selfish applies to the typical American. 2014, another survey found that uh, 71% of adults believe millennials, people ages 18 to 29, are selfish. What's really remarkable, the exact same percentage of millennials, 71%, agreed. We're selfish but I'm not sure we always see it, especially in ourselves. In an article titled, I'm Okay, You're Selfish, the New York Times Magazine reported that only 17% say they are overly concerned about themselves. But 60% think that most other people 
are overly concerned about themselves. We can see it in others. We're not so good at seeing it in ourselves. I think we are selfish by nature. And although I'd like to think that being a follower of Jesus would change that, I'm not sure it always does. We are finishing up the, the Old Testament part of our series, Love This Book. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll start into the New Testament part of that series and focus in on the life of Christ. So uh, we're ending the Old Testament, and we're ending with a, a look at the book of Malachi. Uh, just to give you a little bit of the setting, uh, Malachi is a prophet who lived about 400, 450 years before Jesus. Um, at that moment in time, uh, the exiles, people who have been taken into Babylon and dispersed around the world as God's discipline on the nation of Israel, have come back. And they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. They were expecting a golden age to ensue. It didn't. The temple was very disappointing. Life was hard. Uh, uh, economics were difficult. People are apathetic. They're wor weary. Uh, um, and they're becoming inward focused. They're becoming more and more selfish. And into that situation, God calls Malachi to speak his truth. And that's the book that we have. It's interesting, at the beginning of the book, the very first thing that Malachi does is he reminds the people that God loves them. Uh, Malachi chapter 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have I loved, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, um, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. You go, oh, I don't get it. How does that show God's love? <laughs> you remember uh, that uh, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn son, and by rights, he was to get all the inheritance. Jacob is the second and God, in the midst of that, violates that principle. In fact, he selects Jacob, who is the, the father of Israel, the ancestor of Israel, rather than Esau, who becomes the ancestor of the Edomites. And says, I'm going I'm to select Jacob. I'm going to put my love, my, my election on him. He's the one I'm going to use. So that's why Malachi says, oh, hated Esau. He loved Jacob. It's not emotional terms. He's just saying... He chose Jacob and his ancestors, his descendants, the Israelites, to put his special calling on. When we hear that, I think sometimes we step back and, and wonder to ourselves, why is it that God selected Jacob and the Israelites as the people he was going to love? And Moses ask, actually answers that question back in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. He says, look, God chose you, Israel, not because you were the most numerous nation, not because you were the most powerful nation, not because you were the, the, the most morally righteous nation out there. Rather, he says, God chose you simply because God chose you. God loves you simply because that's why. 
You know what's interesting? That is true for us today. Of those of us who, who know God through faith in Christ, uh, um, have done so not because of our own merit. In fact, the Bible says what we deserve from God is wrath and judgment and condemnation, but God offered Jesus and chose to love us. And the question is why? And the answer is the same as it was back then, just because. God loves us uh, mysteriously in his sovereignty. He has chosen us. Now, we say that a lot, that God loves us. So much so that I think it just goes, yeah, God loves me. But I want you to pause for a moment and really reflect on that. In fact, if you have to, close your eyes and say to yourself, God loves me, and, and think about what that really means. The God who created the universe by speaking it into existence the one who is the most powerful being, being in all creation, the one who is sovereign and king and in charge of all. He is huge and vast and beyond our understanding. That one, that God, loves me. You know, if we grab a hold of that, and let it resonate deeply in us. That's transformative. I mean, that truth, if embraced, will change your life. And I think it should create a question in us. And that is, if it's true that the God of the universe loves us, what's the appropriate response to that? How should we, we, we react? What, what should we do in return? Well, Malachi answers that question for us in, in verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, what Malachi is saying is if it's true that God loves us, then the appropriate response to God's love is to give him honor. And, and the word for honor here is this word kavod. It's the word Larry talked about a few weeks ago when we were in the book of Ezekiel. It literally means heavy, weight. When you give someone honor, you give them the importance that is due them. You, in a sense, give them weight in your life. And what Malachi is saying, because God loves you, the appropriate response is to give him first importance in your life, to um, put him at the center of things. It says, this hulio, 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 how do you say that? Hula hoop, yeah, that. Hula hoop represents our life, and this represents God. To honor him is to put him right in the center of things and make our life rotate around him, to give him importance, to let him be the one who de determines our values and our priorities and our behavior and our speech, to put him in a position where everything in our life comes back to him. Give him the weight he deserves because he, the God of the universe, 
loves us. That's an appropriate response. But the problem is, and Malachi is going to point this out, the Israelites, the chosen people, the, one that, the ones that God loved, they're not doing that. In fact, look at what he says, verse 6. It is you priests, the priests were the representatives of the people, so in a sense the people are doing this. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Now that word contempt is a word that means the exact opposite of kavod. It, it means lightness, uh, little weight, uh, worthless. In other words, instead of giving God weight in their lives, they were treating him lightly as unimportant. They weren't putting him at the center. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. This doesn't make a lot of sense to, to us, this notion of sacrifice. But a sacrifice was something that the people did as an act of worship. In a sense, it was giving God a gift. And it was a way of showing your allegiance, showing how important your God was, a way of giving him, uh, saying thank you and giving him gratitude. What you gave to God indicated what you thought of him. It was a way of saying, hey, yeah, you are the most important thing in my life. I'm, gonna, I'm going to give you, and this was the requirement, the best and the first, the first and the best, the first of my harvest, the best of my herd, the first and the best I'm going to give to you. Why? Because you're, I'm going to honor you. You're the center of everything. But they weren't doing that. They were treating God with contempt. Instead of giving him the first and the best, they were giving him the leftovers, the lame, the blind, the ones they couldn't sell in the market for much, the ones they couldn't use to breed because they were deformed, the ones that were just there. They weren't giving God his proper place. And you can understand why. I mean, think what it was like to always have to give God the first and the best, the first of your harvest, the best of the harvest, the best of the herd. I mean, after a while, that, that gets old, that costs, that... That, that's a sacrifice. And that was to be the point. Now, there's an interesting twist on this because in the New Testament, we don't give sacrifices, right? Rather, we are to be the sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that God loves you, has given you mercy, has placed his love upon you, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, we're not to give him an, uh, a gift. We're to give him ourselves, and, and we're to give him our best. Uh, uh, 
and, and give him ourselves to him first. Um, that means we cannot simply give God the leftovers of our life. That means we have to give him the whole of our lives. And our whole life is all about serving him. He's the priority. That's how we are to honor him. So this makes sense. What Malachi is arguing is, look, God loves you. Because God loves you, you're to honor him. Because you're honor him, you're to give him the, the very first and the very best of your lives, whether for them in Old Testament a sacrifice or for us our very selves. But they're not doing that. And the question is, why? Why? Well, let's step back and think about this a little bit. It's really interesting to me that uh, after the exile, after uh, um, God disciplines his people and takes them and deports them to other countries and they come back, after the exile, Israel no longer falls into idolatry. It's no longer a problem. If you had to ask, what was the besetting sin of Israel before the exile? There's no question that the besetting sin before the exile was idolatry. But after the exile, it's, it, it's, it's not. And idolatry was this. Uh, um, when you were guilty of idolatry, you would take God from his proper place. And instead of putting God there in the middle of life, you would put another God in that place. Now, a lot of times we, we talk about, you know, idolatry is a besetting sin, and we struggle with it, but not in that sense. I mean, I mean, how many of you have little shrines in your house and little idols that you worship, you know, stone statues, and how many of you are really into other gods? That's idolatry. Now, we talk, well, you know, I make my job too important, or money's too important, or a person's too important. I understand that that's a misplaced value, misplaced love. That's really not Old Testament idolatry. It's not a good thing, but it's, it's not what they were struggling with. They were struggling literally with worshiping other gods. They don't do that anymore. So they, but it's not that they haven't removed God, at least from the middle of their lives. They still do that, but now instead of putting an idol there, guess what they put there? Themselves. They become self-centered all about their self-interest. And, and what's really fascinating, they don't take God and put him out of their lives. They just put him on the edge. Now, you've got to understand what they're thinking. They're thinking, look, if I do away with God, then I'm going to miss out on all the blessings. But if I can, you know, keep him on the edge, if I can still go to the temple, if I can still offer sacrifices, if I can go through the religious rituals, you know, go to, go to synagogue, go to temple, do all the stuff. If I just keep him on the edge, then I'll still get all the benefits. But I don't have to... You know, I don't have to give him the first and the best. I can give him the lame and the blind. And that, that's, that'll suffice. I, I, mean, I mean, look at a couple, couple passages. Malachi 1, 12 and 13. He says, but you profane it, God's name, by saying the Lord's table is defiled and food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. They were saying, look, 
life's about me. I mean, given the first, that's, that, becomes a bur- that becomes a hardship, right? So I don't, want, I don't want to do that. And they were playing this cost-benefit analysis. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, you have said it's, it's futile, it's worthless serving God. In other words, it doesn't pay to keep God at the middle of things. I mean, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and doing about going about as mourners before the Lord Almighty. He said, no, the cost is too much. If life is about me, I don't want to put him at the center. That demands sacrifice. I want to be at the center. I'll just keep him to the edge. I think that's our problem. We don't fall into idolatry of worshiping other gods. We fall into the issue of worshiping ourselves. And we, we don't do away with God. I mean, he's a nice addition, right? He's our ticket out of here, right? Get heaven. You know, he's how we forget, get forgiveness. I want all the benefits. I just don't want the cost. So we, we work out this thing. I can still be the center of my life, have Jesus on the side. That works pretty good. Get to do what I want, but still get all the bennies. We're like living sacrifices that keep stepping off the altar again and again. You know, I think this issue is really difficult for us in our culture because we live in a culture that is captured by self-interest. That message, that life is all about us is reinforced all the time, again and again and again. It's a constant challenge not to move Jesus to the periphery of our lives. Because we're natural consumers. We want to do what we want. You know what's interesting to me? I think sometimes we've even framed the gospel to appeal simply to our self-interest. I mean, think about how we have framed the gospel in a consumer-oriented culture to to win people to Jesus, right? What, What do we tell them? We tell them, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that may be true, may not be true. And Jesus died for you so that you could be in relationship with him, so that when you die, you could go to heaven. And in between that time, he'll take care of all your problems. Who could pass up that deal? That's the gospel for the consumer. The problem is that's really not the gospel. I mean, you, you don't find that gospel any place in the New Testament. Oh, that gospel has truth in it. When we come to Jesus, we get forgiveness of sins and we get eternal life. But that's not the gospel. That's derivative. That's the implications of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what? That Jesus is king. And he's been proclaimed king because of his death, his atoning death and his resurrection. And in his death and 
resurrection, he defeated sin and death and evil and has inaugurated his kingdom. That's the good news of the gospel. And the invitation we're given is not about us, but about him being king. He's, he has this grand story of bringing about his kingdom, and we are invited into that story to follow him. When we present the gospel that way, the story is all about him. When we present the gospel the other way, the story is all about us. And when we think the gospel is all about us, we have planted the seed of self-centeredness at the very heart of our faith. Yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus because look at all the benefits. Who could turn down the deal? But if Jesus is king and you have to, if the cost of following him is your entire life, oh, well, let's, let's think about that. You mean I, life isn't about my Self-interest, it's not about what I want. It's not about fulfilling my desire. It's not about making me happy. It's not about me fulfilling my agenda. It's, it's about him. Yeah, that, that's what follow means. He's first, you're not. I have to think about that. We need to think about that. constant challenge is to keep Jesus in the center of our lives and not displace him. And folks, here's the deal. We're not very self-aware of our own selfishness. In other words, we can move him to the periphery and still go to church, still read our Bible, still pray, still act religious, still look to the outside world and often to ourselves, like, we're pretty religious when in reality, it's really about us. And you begin to see where Jesus is in your life when life becomes hard and obedience becomes costly. Then the rest of the book of Malachi. Malachi goes after three issues where the Israelites' self-centeredness is causing them to get off, off track. And I know Malachi was written a long time ago, 2,500 years, but those three issues <laughs> are the same issues often in our culture as well. Marriage, treating the vulnerable well, and money. Let's take a quick look. Fascinating stuff. Malachi chapter 2. In verse 11, he says, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. 
Yeah, there's these single guys in, in Israel and wives are hard to find and they want to be married because it's, it's hard not to be married. That's no fun. But finding a good Jewish girl who loves God isn't easy, but there's other options. So eventually they decide, I'm going to take the other option. And from our perspective, it doesn't seem like that big a deal, married somebody outside of the faith. But from their perspective, it was because if you married a woman who served a foreign God, that was going to tempt you away from God. So you weren't supposed to do that. But if life, if God is heavy in your life, if he's at the center, you wouldn't even think of doing that. But if he's just on the periphery, eh, no big deal. Besides, I want to be married. But it's not only that. Those who were married then were getting divorced when the marriage became inconvenient. Look at uh, verses 14 and 16. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says, the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and not... Do not be unfaithful. What was going on? Well, if life's about you, you know, and uh, your spouse is getting a little worn and you kind of want a new model, something more interesting, something more exciting, you just trade her in, right? No big deal. I want somebody younger. I want somebody more vibrant. I want something prettier. And God said, What? You made a commitment. There's a covenant. This is the wife of your... She's the one you're supposed to protect. You don't just discard... That's hate. You don't just discard her because marriage is hard. See, that's the problem in our culture, right? We think the purpose of marriage is to make us happy and fulfilled, right? That's why we get married. <laughs> and then we face the reality of marriage. Oh, it's, it's not so happy all the time, and it's not so fulfilling. In fact, marriage is stinking hard. But that's not how our culture thinks about it. There's an advertisement in Chicago by a law firm there, a simple advertisement. It said, life is short, get a divorce. And then it, uh, on either side of those words, it's so kind of a sexually charged image of a man and a woman oh yeah, there's something better out there. And it's all about me. And I don't like, this marriage is hard. Well, if marriage is all about making you happy and being self-fulfilling, or being in your self-fulfillment, then yeah, it makes sense, get a divorce, life's short. But that's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about an institution designed to honor God. In other words, in marriage, how you love your spouse becomes an illustration of how Christ loves his church. We think we get married because we love someone. What really happens is we get married because we're infatuated with someone. You don't know if you really love someone until you're 20, 30, 40 years into it, and it's become hard. Because what marriage is, it's the training ground to develop the virtue of love. And the virtue of love is the habitual practice of doing what's best 
for another person again and again and again as a way of life. And that comes over the long haul. And when you practice that virtue in the context of a marriage and make good on your commitments, and folks, if you're in a hard marriage, I know it's hard. This is hard to hear. But I'm telling you, God is calling you to put him at the center and to hang in there and to practice the virtue of love because it's not about you. It's about him. And don't mishear me. There are exceptions where divorce is warranted, but those exceptions are few and far between. So marriage. Then he talks about the vulnerable. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. He's talking about the day of the Lord's coming. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers. And then notice this, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and fatherless and deprive the foreigners, and that word means immigrants, among you of justice. But do not fear me. Um, they were taking advantage of the vulnerable of others and doing it for their own benefit because life was all about them, right? You defrauded the workers. You didn't pay them a livable wage or fairly at all. Why? Because it would cut into your profits. You pay them as minimally as possible, so you defraud them. And you oppress the widows. You take advantage of the widows because the widows are vulnerable. They'd have no one, no family to protect them. And you mistreat and deprive the immigrants of their rights of justice. And they have rights. It's not because they're legal. They have right because they're human beings in the image of God. This is part of the quartet and the vulnerable. You treat these people better than you would even treat others. Why? Because God loves them. And if he's at the center of your life, then you're going to love them as well. The marginal and the vulnerable have a special place in his heart. And what we miss is what drives injustice is selfishness. It's putting ourselves in the center of things because we want to protect our way of life. We want to structure things for our benefit. We want to use others so they benefit us, not so that we necessarily benefit them. So we become very protective of our stuff and our way and our, it's about us. If God's at the center, then what drives us is compassion and the love of the other, especially the vulnerable. And right now in America, our track record is not very good. And the last thing, he goes after his money. Malachi 3, 8, and 9. This is the passage that everybody knows about the book of Malachi, right? Will mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Oh, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. In their culture, they were to give a tenth the first and the best, a tenth of all they earned and all they had to God. 
bring it to the temple and have it be used for God's purposes. Some of it went to help the poor. Some of it went to support the temple. But you were to give it away. And, and doing that was a mark of your allegiance. It was a way of saying, hey, God, you're the most important thing in my life. In fact, you're so important. All the money, all the resources, all the stuff I have, I understand is yours. And you have blessed me so that I can be a blessing to others. But they were taking that blessing and they were simply consuming it on themselves. I mean, giving a tenth? Are you kidding? That's 10% of what I'm... I can't do that. That's not practical. I might not be able to get all the stuff I want if I give a tenth. I might have to sacrifice... Yeah, that was the point. I mean, the statistics on giving aren't aren't very good. I I think Waterstone does way better than this, but but let me share some of these with you. According to the nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. 5%. Of those people who say, yeah, God is the center of my life, give regularly. Households that make more than $75,000. In other words, those who have more disposable income are the least charitable nationwide. How is that that the more we have, the more stingy we become? Christians today give 2.5% of their income. For comparison, during the Great Depression, the number was 3.3%. In other words, people during the Great Depression gave more of their income away than we who live today who have won the historical lottery do. What? What? When people had less, they gave more. We have more, we give less. Oh yeah, but God's, God's at the center of my life. Don't tell me God's at the center of your life if you are not radically generous. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If your treasure is all about you, your heart is all about you. If your heart is all about God, then when it comes to your money and your resources and your time and your wealth, you will be radically generous. You'll give so much away, you'll have to change how you live. That's the point. That's the point. 37% of those who consider themselves evangelicals do not give to churches at all. According to a study from the University of Notre Dame, when it comes to giving money away, 10% of, giving away 10% of their finances, a tithe, only 2.7% of the people, religious or non-religious, fall into this category. We've sold people a gospel that says, oh, it's all about you. You get to go to heaven. You get forgiveness. Jesus will solve all your problems. And it costs you nothing. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, yes, Jesus forgives your sins. And yes, you get eternal life by trusting in him. But understand this. The expectation 
is that you honor him. In other words, you put him at the center and you give him everything in return. That's the gospel. So, what do we do? Malachi calls the Israelites to do two things. Remember and repent. Remember. Remember that the one you serve, that the God who loves you is the great king who ultimately will bring judgment and blessing. Malachi 1.14. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You know, we all have a primary framework through which we understand God. Maybe it's Father, maybe it's Friend, maybe it's Savior, maybe it's Rescuer. I think one of the best and most helpful is to see Jesus as King. Because when we relate to God as King, it pushes us onto our knees and keeps Him in proper perspective at the center of our lives. I mean, think, how do you respond to a monarch, an emperor, a king? You defer, you give them respect, you bow. Why? Because they're powerful. They have authority, and there is a sense of of fear because kings have kingdoms. And when you're in their kingdom, you serve them. And Malachi talks about the fact that the day is coming when the king comes to establish his kingdom in its fullness. And on that day, all things are made right, and the wicked are judged, and the righteous are rewarded. And if we're going to make him our king, then that means we need to repent. Malachi chapter 3 says this, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed, although you deserve to be. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The word there, return, literally means to turn around. In the New Testament, we say that's repentance. You know, we we see repentance as this um, singular moment where people come back to God. And I just wonder if perhaps we should see repentance more as a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice of something that we continually need to repeat again and again in our lives, moments of repentance daily. Those moments where, where in a sense, we're self-correcting. When I was working on this message, my daughter started Ralph. Ralph is our robotic vacuum cleaner. And uh, he's taught me lots of spiritual lessons. And I was watching him, you know, and he, he, he goes in a straight line until he hits the the wall, and then he turns, and then he goes back, and, and he hits the wall. And he has all these sensors, little bumpers, so when he gets to the edge, it warns him, and he turns around, and he has a laser that's always looking for a boundaries. And then underneath, in the front, he has these little uh, uh, seeing eyes, so that when he gets to the edge, like on a stair, and he's going to go over the stair, go over the edge, the little sensor goes off, and he backs up. And I'm thinking, that's repentance. That's, what, that's how we should live. 
always looking for the boundaries, always making sure we're turning around, always make sure we're climbing back on the altar, always making sure we're keeping him at the center of our lives. That's what it means to honor God. God loves you. He does. But because he loves you, you're to honor him. Honor him as the great king, the one who judges and the one who blesses. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's hard. <laughs> we are people who tend to be self-centered, who wander away from you, seeking our own desires. Help us to be people who are constantly turning back and are keeping you at the center of our lives. We pray this, we ask for it by your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King, amen.